It is an honor to have been invited to stand behind this three-cross pulpit again during this time of, of uh, coronavirus, all that's going on, and for you who have braved these times to be here, it's good to see you again, and it's an honor to have been here. I, uh, I pray for your church regularly, and especially during a time when you're searching for the pastor that the Lord has in mind. The church that I attend, Del Norte, just called a pastor last week. We've uh, been without a pastor something over a year, and we called a pastor, and he had uh, uh, almost a unanimous call, had two negative votes, and it reminded me of a time a number of decades ago when I was called to a church with one negative vote, had one person that voted no, and, and I accepted the call to the church, but I got obsessed with trying to figure out who that one negative vote was. Who would have done such a thing? And I plotted on it and thought about it, and I finally figured out who it was. It was a guy named Austin. And I decided I was going to make Austin my new best friend. And so I spent time being kind to Austin. And I would joke with Austin. And I would call attention to Austin from the pulpit. And I would walk to Austin and pat him on the back and do all those things that you could do. And pretty soon, Austin started kind of moving away. When I would move toward Austin, he would go the other direction. And it wasn't too long till Austin kind of quit coming to church. I had overplayed it. It took a while, but I finally got the hint. Well, folks in that church were so kind, and they would often invite us into their homes for a meal. And one night we were eating with a couple named Ron and Dolores in their home when Ron said, well, the reason I really wanted to invite you here tonight is to apologize for casting the one vote against you. <laughs> when you were coming for our pastor, it wasn't Austin at all. Sometimes what you're just sure of and what is really true are two different things. We're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 14 in a little while. But before we go there, I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a minute. But we'll be looking at knowing the truth and not knowing the truth. We think of a perfect storm as a cataclysm during which at least three crises occur simultaneously. Right now, our nation is involved in a perfect storm, the perfect storm of 2020, and who knows how it's going to end up. First, of course, is the COVID-19 crisis in which we're all involved. And second is the social and racial unrest that affects everything from our police to our monuments around, around the country. And the third crisis is this year's national elections that we have coming up, bringing out pundits 
and from the thoughtful to the loudmouths and candidates of every stripe and you bundle all three of those crises together and you do have a, a perfect storm. And right now you and I are living in the eye of this perfect storm and as Christians, how do we deal with all of this in a godly way? How should we handle this if we claim to be a Christian and it just fries our egg the way all of this is happening? How should we deal with it in a godly way? Well, for starters, we need to look in the Word of God. We need to look and see what the Bible tells us. In three different places, Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, and he said we should watch what we say, for one thing. Be careful what you say. In 1 Timothy 6.20, he said, Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Godless chatter. That was in 1 Timothy. And then in 2 Timothy 2.16, he used the same terminology. He said, avoid godless chatter. Pretty good terminology Paul used there for us as well. And then in Titus 3.9, he used the same general idea. Avoid foolish controversies. So in other words, he's saying... Be careful what you say when, the, when you're involved in this perfect storm. Do not speak about these issues, or if you do, make sure what you say edifies God, that it lifts up God. If you're going to say anything at all, say stuff that lifts up God, that puts God first in first place. Now, having chased that rabbit, and with that key thought in mind of putting God first. Let's go back and look at what made our nation great in the first place and see how we can answer the question, what really makes a nation great? And how can America stay a great nation? Now to our text, Proverbs chapter 14. We'll look at two different verses in that chapter. First, is verse 12, Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. I'm reading from the New International Version. Your version may say leads to destruction. But either way, it is saying, if you do what you think may be right, you may be making a big mistake, and in the end, it may lead to to destruction, by following your own ideas and not following the precepts outlined in the Word of God, you may end up in destruction. And then down to verse 34, righteousness or godliness exalts a nation. There you go. That's how you build up a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. The pilgrims came to America in 1620 to escape religious tyranny in England and Holland. 
as they were about to land at Plymouth Rock. Now, it wasn't quite as simple as most of us think about when we did the children's plays. But as they finally came to Plymouth Rock, as they were getting ready to land, they bowed before Almighty God in grateful recognition of his blessings shown by bringing them to safe harbor in a new world. They revered God and his word. They put God first. The colony of pilgrims is considered the foundation of what eventually became the United States of America. They put together the Mayflower Compact. And the Mayflower Compact was the basis, as it moved on down through the years, 150-something years later, was the basis for the Declaration of Independence, which we celebrated yesterday on uh, the 4th of July. That started with God being recognized as the beginning. Now, they didn't, it wasn't a religious society. There were a lot of religious people there, and about half the people on the Mayflower were part of the same church. But the, it started as a civil society recognizing that there was a God. The importance was putting God first in their civil society. God has preserved for us almost, well, has preserved us almost two and a half centuries now. We have grown in numbers and wealth and power. We have a surplus of the necessities of life. And we enjoy freedoms that no other nation enjoys. The freedoms. The question today is, will America stay a great nation? And if it will, what will make it stay a great nation? To answer that question, we must first recognize what makes a nation great. Right now, it's not a stretch to fear we may, be, we may hear it beginning to crumble around the edges during this perfect storm or even smell it beginning to decay. Don't want to think like that. And I pray it's just a temporary diversion. But God's got to be the center. We've got to turn back to God. We've got to put God in first place. So first of all, for a nation to be great, it must have the right kind of citizens. For a nation to be great, it must have the right kinds of citizens. Freedom-loving citizens who appreciate their freedoms and teach their children also. In some of our nation's darkest hours of World War II, President Roosevelt read a proclamation reinforcing that all Americans should enjoy freedom of speech and religion, freedom from want and fear. He called it the four freedoms. Four freedoms that much of the rest of the world was not able to experience. Then there were those even in our own, or there, there are now those even in our own country who would take away many of our freedoms. Do that and we lose our greatness. A great nation needs citizens who are willing to sacrifice. 159 years ago, our nation almost fell apart as we went to war with ourselves. But the right side won. 
and we became a great nation with laws that guarantee freedom for everyone. Since then, American blood has been shed all over the world to preserve not only our own freedoms, but also those of freedom-loving people all over the world. Of course, laws are only as good as those who enforce them. As a nation, we could have saved ourselves a lot of grief if we had gone to the Scriptures, if we just followed God's Word. There's no difference Romans 10, 12, there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon his name. In other words, God doesn't recognize the difference in races, and neither should we. God doesn't distinguish between ethnicities, and neither should we. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We should all recognize that God wants all of us. We have exactly the same value before God who gave his son, Jesus Christ, for every one of us. He wants us all to come to him. So a nation... To be great must have the right kind of citizens. And we are the most giving nation on earth. We have much and we give much out of love for our fellow man. It's part of being the right kind of citizens. God willing, we will continue in that path. A great nation has not only the right kind of citizens, but it has the right kind of institutions, the right kind of homes, the right kind of churches, the right kind of schools, and the right kind of governments. What kind of homes ought we to have? Right now in America, the nuclear home is becoming less and less common. Often daycare operators have a greater influence over our children than we do. What a shame when those things happen. And maybe you can't do anything about that. Maybe that's, I mean, that's our society. The way things are set up, you have to go to work and you work and you work and you come home tired at night and the daycare operator spent the day with your child. Suck it up. Spend some quality time with your children. Just do it. And if you're just too tired and you can't do it, figure out a time to make some quality time with the kids later on. Do something that does it. We have no greater earthly responsibility than to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. If you have influence over the children, if you have responsibility for children, take it seriously. The right kind of home will encourage one another. Spend time as a family in God's word and in prayer. Give more than take and learn to forgive and love each other. Do family projects together. I, uh, back when we were able to do this, I volunteered at the VA hospital and uh, I was a greeter, and when we are able to start this again, I will 
be a greeter again on Thursday mornings for four hours. When you walk in the front door, I'm one of those guys with a red jacket on, classy looking. Uh, walk into the front door and, and, uh, and a greeter greets you. And I was impressed one day with a, uh, a young family that came in. It was a father and a mother and two kids. And the kids were probably 10 and 12 years old. And they were carrying bags of candy. And I asked them, I said, and, and they were going to pass out candy to all the veterans sitting around in that big lobby there in the, in the, in the uh, hospital. And I said, I've got to be careful about that. Have you all checked out with the administration to make sure you can do it? And the dad said, you bet we have. And he showed me his little slip of paper that said it's okay. They had taken the time to do it right to go to the administration office and get permission to pass out candy to veterans. And they were taking, they brought the kids with them to make sure that the kids were learning how to do something nice. Took the day off to go pass out candy to veterans for crying out loud. And I was a veteran and I took some candy. <laughs> Isn't that a nice thing to do? Do some family projects that help the kids to understand the value of doing things as a family. That's the kind of families we need to do. What about our churches? Are they Bible-teaching churches that proclaim the marvelous good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Are they places that love and minister to people? This one is. This is a, this is a good church. Do they water down the gospel and teach social relativism. A lot of churches are, are getting that way. Or do they teach the wonderful, deep, life-giving truths of God's holy word? There's so much in the Bible that people can learn and apply to their lives. Remember, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? When you read the word of God, there's so much in there that you can learn and you can apply to your life that lifts you up and encourages you and makes you a valuable tool of the kingdom of God. What kind of schools do we have? We remember we're talking about what really makes a nation great. What about our schools? Are ethics and values taught along with the three R's? If your child's school doesn't display the American flag, and some aren't, then do it at home for crying out loud. Put up the American flag and teach your children to sing God Bless America and to say the national anthem. Teach them how to do that at home if they don't learn it at school. And then display the Marine Corps flag and teach them to sing from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Yes, indeed. And to say Semper Fi would be just fine, too. When my mother was a school teacher, she started teaching school in the 1950s. And she retired as a school teacher up in the early 80s. So she taught for a long time. But when she started teaching school, she, was, uh, uh, she would read, Friday afternoons, she would read a Bible story to her students. 
And then it would always, you know, it'd be like a story from Jonah or Job. One of those stories that she could pull out a, a truth and teach uh, ethics or values or something like that. So, so Friday afternoon, she'd read a Bible story and then she'd talk, ask questions about what did you learn from, from that Bible story. And eventually, as you all well know, got to a point where she wasn't allowed to read from the Bible anymore. And so how was she going to teach ethics and, and all of that? Well, she kind of got around that by starting to read stories, read a chapter at a time or a few chapters from Little House on the Prairie or from David Copperfield. And so, and, and use, ask the same kinds of questions from secular books. There are ways this can be done. You're not allowed to do the Bible, but you can teach biblical principles if you choose to. School teachers, you know that. Let me encourage you to keep on doing that. Teach the principles that make the nation great. Ethics and values along with the three R's. What kind of government do we have? Need to have the right kind of government to be a great nation. I was pleased that President Bush made me one of his advisors. I was the project manager for the creating the National Museum of the Marine Corps while I was doing that at, out in Washington, D.C. Uh, when we had our grand opening, the, uh, President Bush spoke for our grand opening. And I worked with some of his staff in helping to get him there and do all that. And, of course, I had lots of ideas. And one of his staff members finally told me, he said, uh, we've been told to tell you that when the president wants your advice, he'll ask you for it. <laughs> Made me one of his advisors. Never mind. <laughs> Our form of democracy began as an experiment and is now a model for the world. A great nation will have a government founded and operated on godly principles. Andrew Jackson said, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. The Bible. I was flying somewhere in the Middle East. I can't remember exactly where I was going, but there happened to be a fellow from Romania sitting in the seat next to me. He spoke very good English. And he had been raised in Romania during the time that Romania was, was part of the Soviet Union. And, and uh, his dad worked as, uh, of course they were communists, and he, his dad worked as a carpenter for the Romanian government. And he said, uh, I said, well that must have been interesting growing up in that thing, and, and now he was very much a capitalist. And he said, yeah, he said, the, the government would pretend to pay my dad and he would pretend to work. And, uh, and I said, well, did you live in one of those government houses? And he said, no, my dad built our house. He said he built it out of materials he pilfered from the government. Uh, is that the kind of, and, and the government knew it, he said, but they just turned their face the other way because that's just the way things worked in that kind of a, that kind of a government. What kind of a situation is that? to have to live under. And others who sometimes try democracy are not successful if they do not rely on biblical 
principles. The way democracy works is for people to love each other, to use Judeo-Christian ethics and principles, like the Ten Commandments and like the Golden Rule and so forth. I'm so glad that a number of years ago, the effort to remove in God we trust from our currency failed. Now, perhaps that's just a small victory, but it is something. In God we trust. You see, that's the sort of thing that makes a nation great. Finally, a great nation is a God-directed society. There are those among us who would have us believe in the concept of secular humanism. A lot of that going on, meaning we all have a little bit of God in us, and whatever seems right, if it feels good, do it. I was a college student in the 60s. Boy, did we have a lot of that drivel going on back in those days. If it feels good, just do it. And many in America still push it. No, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In 1960, I'm sorry, in 1863, at our country's darkest hour, Abraham Lincoln said, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to owe their dependence upon overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. How does a nation get great? Make God the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. During the painful and threatening days of World War II, revival spread across our nation. Citizens prayed. The nation got down on its knees, and the voice of Kate Smith could be heard on every radio singing, God bless America, land that I love. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There are individual Christians in Muslim countries today, not with physical freedom, but with spiritual freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. John 8, 36 says, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's what makes a nation right. Let us take seriously 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. Read it with me, would you please? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Our land needs the healing touch of the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, 
There is freedom. That's what makes a nation great. It starts with individuals committing ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, then leading those over whom we have influence to faith in Christ, then influencing our city, our state, our nation, and our world for the one who loves them all, God Almighty, who loves us all. Bow your heads with me, please. Have you prayed to receive Christ? Do you know him personally? Have you asked Christ to come into your life? If you've not, the time is now. Oh, there's so much to be gained by knowing Christ, and there's so much to be lost if you don't know him. Jesus Christ, God himself in the form of man, came to this earth to die a cruel death on the cross that we might come to know him personally and have our sins forgiven. That have our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, and have sweet fellowship with him forever. Why not do that now? I encourage you to pray a prayer like this with me. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I know my sin must be paid for by death. And that's why you died so I wouldn't have to. I now accept your death as payment for my sin and ask you to come into my life and to be my Lord and my master. I give myself to you. Dear Jesus, be mine forever. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We have a time of commitment now. I encourage you to please stand. And during this commitment time, if you need to make a, a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, we'll have a counselor here at the front. You can come down and talk to him about next steps to give your life completely and totally to Jesus Christ. As this music plays, you give your life to Christ. Let's just quietly stand. And if you need to give your life to Christ, this is the time. And after the service is over, for those of you that have participated from one of the media outlets, we encourage you to get in touch with the church. And those of you that are here, get in touch with one of the counselors. Father, I thank you so much for the time that we've been able to spend together and help our nation to remain great by trusting you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Mm -hmm.